Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. I normally don't wear coats or vests, but I'm really cold this morning, so I've got my, my handy-dandy vest on. Um, hey, let me pray for us, and we're going we're gonna to jump in. God, thank you so much for this morning. Um, I just feel it's evident um, that you're present with us and so many incredible, unforeseen, and amazing ways. And so God, we ask that you just continue to be with us as we're in your word and that your word would speak powerfully to our hearts. God, help us have a better understanding today of how the Old Testament functions in our life, um, but also free us to live our lives in a way that looks like Jesus. God, it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, one of, my, one of my favorite things to do if I have time is to spend time on my mountain bike. And one of my favorite mountain biking trails has this really technical, rocky climb about halfway. All of these mountains, one day a buddy and I were riding this trail, and as we got to the bottom of that hill, there were all of these mountain bikers hanging out just sitting there, and we were wondering what in the world's going on. And so as we pull up closer, we find out there is a guy teaching a mountain biking school. And so he's giving these different riders the skills needed to make it up this technical climb. And so we're sitting there thinking, maybe we could learn something because we don't always make it up. And we're watching, listening, and the first guy, the first student comes in, just guns a-blazing, flying down the trail. He starts going up the hill, and about halfway up, he gets off course and he has to unclip and jump off his bike before he tumbles all the way back down. And, and the guy, the teacher, the guru looks at him and says, do less. And he's like, okay, all right. Like he understands. And the next guy comes in at a much more casual pace. He's, he's pedaling a little bit easier and he starts going up. And at the casual pace, he makes it just as far. But at that same point, he also has to bail and get off his bike. And the teacher looks at him and says, do more. And, and it's like, is this Yoda? Like, do or do not. There is no try. Like, what in the world's happening here? And so, and so me and my friend, just we found ourselves laughing about that because how confusing must it have been just to be a student and not to hear, try lower gear. But as I look back on that day, I think about how confusing it must be as we try to talk about growing in our faith as Christians. Right? So for one person, they're doing so much. It's they're reading their Bible every day. They're showing up to church and worshiping. They're praying. They're, they're serving. They're, they're, they're doing the, the right things, and, and they feel distant from God. And you look at that person who thinks they can somehow earn God's love or make their way into his presence from their activity, and we say, do less. Right? Being precedes doing. Just, just be present. Do less. Then you have another person who is the complete opposite, and they feel distant from God, but they have more of this Christian wheelchair mentality where they just say, like, let go and let God. If God wants to push me over here and make me grow, then he'll do it. If I don't grow, it's on him, not me. And they're just hanging back. And, and you look at that person, you say, do more, you know, cultivate habits of grace to experience the life that God has saved you for, you know, do something. And so do, do less, do more. And, and so as we've been in the book of Romans, 
we've kind of seen Paul giving that do less, do more throughout the book. In chapter three, he builds this case that our justification or our salvation is by grace through faith alone. So for the person who thinks that their salvation comes from obedience and doing all the right things, he looks at them and says, do less, right? It's not about what you can do. It's about what Christ has done. But that leads to this huge misunderstanding where people think, well, if it's not about what we can do, but what Jesus has done, then can I just live my life however I want? Does it really matter? And, and so in chapter six, he looks at them and says, no, 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 do, do more, right? He's like, your, your, your works, your obedience play no role in your justification, but they do play a role in your sanctification. So yeah, Jesus doesn't just save you from wrath. He saves you for a better life to live today. So do something. Do, like, don't just hang back and it's do less, do more. And, and as we get to this point, it's kind of confusing. Like, is it do less or do more? So let me just try to catch us up real quick with the first six chapters as we get into chapter seven. Two words are really helpful. Justification, and sanctification, right? Two words, they're super helpful. One, justification. What in the world does that mean? Um, well, it's this declaration by God where he says, you are righteous or you are in a right relationship with me. When I look at you, I see someone who's in right standing. And, and what that is, is that because of Jesus living a perfect life in our place, because of Jesus dying in our place, a substitutionary death, the death that we deserve, and because of his glorious resurrection, what happens is he exchanges his righteousness for our sinfulness. He takes what he's done and puts it in our account. He takes our account and puts it on himself and, and he changes places, right? So what that means, justification, is that the penalty of our sin is now removed. The penalty of our sin is death. That means to be eternally separated from God's grace and his love, to be eternally present in his justice and wrath. And Jesus takes that upon himself, that penalty is removed. And because of that, that exchange, what happens is our position before God now changes. The penalty of sins removed, our position changes. So when God looks at the Christian, he sees Jesus in our place. So when God looks at us, he no longer sees a sinner, he sees a saint. And maybe, maybe you grew up in a Catholic background and you're, that's really troublesome for you. You're like, saint, like we're not saints. That's a, well, here's the deal. Paul, when he writes these letters throughout the New Testament, he says to the saints at Philippi, to the saints at Corinth, to the saints. And what he's doing is he's saying, remember who you are. It's his way of saying, before I tell you anything about what you need to do, remember who you are. Remember that Jesus stands in your place. So that's justification. That's a one-time activity that happens in a Christian's life. It's how the gospel has saved you. That leads us to sanctification, right? Sanctification, not saint, but sanct. Google it, all right? But sanctification, that's where the power of sin has been removed. So justification, the penalty, sanctification, the power of sin has been removed, which means that we now have a new power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit enables us, right, to become more and more like Jesus in the way we live. So this is, this is kind of confusing, but I wanna make sure it sinks in. Justification is an internal, right, a heart level, an internal and eternal truth, forever true, right? It's always true of us because of Jesus, right? It's internal and eternal, justification. Sanctification is a way of displaying that internal truth externally. It's this progressive um, movement of living in the power of the Holy Spirit to where what's true of us internally and eternally begins to display externally through the way that we live our lives, 
So what Paul says in chapter six to the question of, can I just do whatever I want? Does it really matter if I'm in sin or not? He says, look, what you do plays no role to your justification, but it absolutely is important to your sanctification. Okay, so that, that's the case that he just built in chapter six. You're all caught up, right? Now what happens is, is his audience, as they're reading this, they're thinking, wait, if it's not about what I can do, but what Jesus has done, and if that's what saves us, but sanctification means that we, we do need to do some things, does that mean that I now go back to the Old Testament? Is it salvation, Jesus, but then sanctification following all those Old Testament commands? Are we supposed to now go back and follow the Old Testament? It's this question of like, so what do we do with the Old Testament? Now we have Jesus as the Old Testament still something we should be living by. And so Paul wants to address that question now, the question of what do we do with the Old Testament? If, if what we do does matter for sanctification, does that mean we go back to doing the do's and don'ts of the Old Testament law? All right, so let's pick up chapter seven, verse one, and let's try to wrestle with this a little bit. All right, verse one, he says, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. All right, real quick, if you're a, a note taker and a follower, this breaks down into a good like Southern Baptist three-point sermon. Okay, their first verse is the principle. Verse one, principle. Verses two and three is an illustration. And then verses four through six is the application. All right, so principle, illustration, Application. Verse one, the principle. He says, or do you not know? When he says, do you not know? He's saying what I'm about to talk about is a basic principle for Christian living. This is just something that's bare bones basic to living the Christian life. Now, he, when he says like, don't you know this? I think back to being a kid, you develop vocabulary from your parents a little bit. So last night I was reading Matthew with my daughter, Ruthie, and we're talking about Jesus's baptism. And I said, do you know what de descend means? And she goes, no. It's like, it means come down. Right, so like, so the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus, like descend. Like, so now she's, she's developing vocabulary. A vocabulary word that I developed as a kid way before my friends was the word comprehend because my mom would look at me and say, don't you comprehend, right? And I'm like, what does that mean? I learned quickly. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? And when, I, when she said that, I always felt dumb, like I should get this, all right? And so when we read this, do you not know, it might feel like Paul saying, can't you comprehend? But he says, do you not know brothers? And that word brothers is a term of affection. So he's not saying this to make them feel dumb. He's saying this to help them feel loved. He's saying like, hey, this is something that's really important. And if you don't know, I want you to know, because this is a basic principle that's necessary for living the Christian life. And he says, I'm writing to those who know the law. And so the law he's talking about here is it's the law given by Moses on Mount Sinai. It's the Old Testament stuff. And, and some people think like, oh, he's only writing to Jews. But the whole church, both Jews and Gentiles, knew the law. They knew the Old Testament because Paul references it all throughout the book of Romans. He always quotes it because he just assumes that his readers know it. So he's talking to the whole church here. And he's, then he gives the principle. All right, so here's the principle. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. In other words, the law only rules over someone as long as they are alive. The law only rules over someone as long as they're alive. So if there's a funeral procession, I don't think this has ever happened, but let's say the hearse gets lost, 
and they jump on the highway and they're speeding and flying down the road, the person in the casket's not concerned about the speed limit because that law doesn't mean anything to them anymore, right? The law only rules over someone as long as they are alive. So that, that's the principle we get in verse one. So now he moves to an illustration, verses two and three. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So real quick, I just wanna, I wanna make sure this is clear. Romans 7 is not about divorce and remarriage, all right? Now, some people take this text and they use this to develop their theology of when can you get remarried after a divorce or is that ever okay? And, and I, I know this because I have a very long email about it, all right? And so, and like, but he's not talking about marriage here. Like what he's, so to take two verses out of one book and not to take the whole counsel of God's word and to develop your theology is just, it's, it's not showing a lot of integrity to God's word, all right? So, but he's not talking about marriage. He's using an illustration to drive home a point. So he's using marriage as an illustration because he wants to make a point, all right? What he wants to see is that faith, or what he wants us to see is that Jesus changes our relationship to the Old Testament. He wants us to see that this isn't about, um, what is it? this isn't about marriage. It's about how Jesus changes our relationship to the Old Testament. What he wants us to see is that the law has a limited jurisdiction, jurisdiction to life. And when death happens, that changes everything, right? So he's not talking about marriage. He's just, he's building a case to say, because of death, all right, our relationship to the Old Testament has completely changed. Its jurisdiction, because of death, no longer has rule in our lives. All right, so he's going he's gonna to unpack that a little bit. Look at verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we see here is when we put our faith in Christ, when you say like, I, I trust Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation, what happens is his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection. What I mean by that is, is we believe in the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, that Jesus stands in our place and he takes the penalty of sin upon himself and he dies for our sins. And that death that he died now counts for ours. So we don't have to die that death suffering the wrath of God, right? And then after he goes into the grave or like into the hillside, right? Like he comes out and he's resurrected and he's this new life. That new life is what we've been saved for and brought into. His resurrection is our resurrection. So what he's saying here is through the substitutionary death, we are freed from any obligation to Old Testament obedience and we're brought into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, so through the substitutionary death, we are freed from any obligation to Old Testament obedience and brought into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. That means, this is really good news, that means that God's acceptance of you is not based on your goodness, but on his grace. 
Like, that's amazing. He's saying, like, look, God's acceptance of you is not based on your goodness. It's not based on your ability to, to cross your T's and dot your I's and follow all the do's and don'ts. Your acceptance is solely based off of God's grace, all right? And so what we remember here, though, is look at the end of verse 4. In order. It's saying, like, there's a purpose to this. There's a, 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 a cause and an effect in order that we may bear fruit for God. It's like when we know God's grace, the overflow of our lives is that we begin to live in obedience. So acceptance leads to obedience. Obedience never leads to acceptance. So what we realize is that holiness doesn't bring us to Christ, but Christ brings us to holiness. All right, verse five says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, All right? So in verse five, he says, look, just, just like sin, chapter six, just like sin leads to death, he says, so also the law leads to death. He says, look, here's what the law does. It arouses sinful passions. It's like when God gives you the law, instead of it leading you to, to life, it leads you to a worse place. And you're like, how does that happen? Think about kids. If you give a kid a boundary, you know what they do? they push it or break it because they feel like they might be missing out. So for instance, shameless confession, we still have Halloween candy on top of our fridge. Why? I don't know. It's just a bowl. So if I tell my kids, don't climb on the counter and try to get the candy on the fridge, that is for rewards only. Like when you do things right, like don't do that. That's a rule. All of a sudden there's a boundary and now they walk by and they see that and they're like, I think I want candy. And so when we find wrappers stashed away under a pillow upstairs, it's like, why? they felt like I must be missing out on something. So I want to push or even break that boundary because I feel like I'm missing out. And so what we see this, if the law leads us to feel like, am I missing out on what other people get to do? Jesus frees us to something better. Look at verse 6. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It's like the gospel makes us new persons where we want to obey from the heart. The gospel changes our motivation structure for obedience. For instance, let's say you're raising up some kids and you're like, you need to be kind to people that you don't like. You need to, to share with others. You need to, and we give them a list of things to do. Kids very well might live by those commands, but they do so because they don't want to get punished. Right? Like, I, just, I fear if I do this wrong, I might get spanked or I might get sent to timeout or I might lose TV or lose my tablet. And so I obey this so I don't lose anything. Or other kids might follow the commands of their parents because they just want their parents' acceptance. Maybe if, if I do the right things, and I'll know my dad or I know my mom loved me, so I do, I do the right things. And, and so what Paul shows us in verse 6 is that, is that that's outward obedience, right? But, but the gospel leads to gospel obedience, right? So as Christians, we don't obey to get God's approval or because it's our duty. We obey because we love God and he's the treasure of our hearts, we obey God, not because it's our duty, like we have to. It's, it's, it's just, I, I want to do that. Okay, I want to do that. And we're going to get to that here in a second. Okay, so, so real quick, what's the big idea of this passage? 
Okay, I'm going to read this twice because it's complicated. It should be more simple. Right? The Old Testament law does not and cannot bring victory over sin and death or change our hearts. Only a relationship with Jesus can do that. Right? So this is what Paul wants to drive home from chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. The Old Testament law, which to the audience reading this, they would have been like, that's sweeter than honey. It's better than gold. Like this is something they would have delighted to meditate on. He says, look, the Old Testament law does not and cannot bring victory over sin and death or change our hearts. Only a relationship with Jesus can do that. Okay? And our relationship with Jesus means the Old Testament has no jurisdiction over Christian lives, period. Okay, in the same way that a law doesn't have jurisdiction past death, because we are dead to that, the Old Testament law, all this stuff in the Old Testament, none of it, none of it whatsoever has any jurisdiction in the Christian life, period. Okay, now, like, I, like, there's a lot of debate around this. Some people might say, well, there are three different types of law. There was the, there was the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral code. And the moral code is still binding. I'm going to say the Jews never broke the law up into three ways. It was just the law and none of it. None of it is binding on the Christian life now, period. Right? You're like, okay, this is getting a little sketchy here. What do we do with that? All right, so I want to talk about two things. Two things real quick. First, should we throw out the Old Testament and just stick to the red letters of Jesus? Should, I, is that like, should we like, all right, so just throw out the Old Testament. Give me a cool little pocket-sized New Testament. I'm just going to hang out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going I'm I'm to be a red-letter Christian. It's all about Jesus and Jesus only. Like, should we just throw out the Old Testament and go red-letter only. If it doesn't have any binding or any jurisdiction on our lives anymore, should we just go red letter Jesus stuff from now on, right? So maybe, maybe you're wondering that. And to that, I have a couple of thoughts, all right? First of all, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Notice he says, look, I didn't come to rip the Old Testament out, to write it out of your history. He goes, I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. And that word fulfill means to bring forth what it was pointing to. In other words, he says, look, the Old Testament, because of Jesus, like our relationship to the Old Testament changes, but the Old Testament's still good. When Paul writes about it in Timothy, he says, like, look, this is God-breathed. All of this is God's word. I still believe 100% that the Old Testament is the fully inspired and inerrant word of God. Like, this is still good for us, but our relationship changes. It's, you see, it's no longer primarily about what we can do. It's not about us and what we can do. It's about Jesus and what he came to fulfill, right? So yes, like let's still read the Old Testament. Here, here's some reasons why I believe we should still read the Old Testament. One, it reveals God's character, right? Like it helps us to see what, what we're not reading the laws to, under, to, to understand them, to obey them. We're reading the laws to understand the one who gave the laws and what he's like. So in Deuteronomy, when he says, you need to build a fence around your roof, that's a command. And we look at my house, like, do I have a fence up there? No, all right? The reason being is because I don't hang out on my roof. But we see that God cares about the protection of his people. Like, so like, what we see is like, this reveals to us God's character, that he cares for his people. So we see things about God's character. It helps us shape our worldview. The way that we view the world, it helps us, make this, helps us to make sense of sin, and why things are broken and fractured and what God is aiming back towards. Right? It helps bring the New Testament to life. Like as you read the New Testament and it quotes things like John the Baptist, maybe you're reading the gospels right now and you read about John the Baptist and he's this, this Elijah type character. 
You want to know who Elijah is. There's awesome stuff. Like all of a sudden, as you know who Elijah is, it brings life to the words that you're reading in the New Testament. So it helps to bring the New Testament to life. Um, Another thing that it does is it creates this incredible backdrop to Jesus. It helps us to make sense of why did Jesus have to come into history? And so the Old Testament is a treasure chest filled with things that help us know who God is, what he's like, and what he's up to in the world. And it's all pointing us to Jesus. So yes, like let's still read and study and meditate and get into the Old Testament, right? That's why last semester we did an an Old Testament one class. We went through the the first half Old Testament. We're about to kick off Old Testament two. Like I wouldn't be doing that stuff and taking part in it and pushing it if I didn't think this was really good, right? So the Old Testament, we shouldn't rip it out. We shouldn't just stick to the red letters. We should read all of God's word from beginning to end. All right, next question or next thing. Um, Are we hypocrites for choosing some of the Old Testament and ignoring the rest? Like, are we just picking and choosing? Well, I like this command, so I'm going to throw that on an Instagram meme, and then I don't like this one, so I'm just going to ignore it. For instance, there's um, back in the day, the poster child for Christianity was, was Tim Tebow, right? Like when I say back in the day, it's like 10 years ago, right? But, but Tim Tebow, Tim, and atheists just hate this guy. They're like, I can't stand him. They're all mad at him. Like, you can't put John 3.16 on your cheek. That's a fence to my free, you know. Either way, so people don't like Tim Tebow. So an atheist group made a meme or made a picture online where they had Tim Tebow holding a football and underneath it, it quoted Leviticus 11, seven through eight that says you can't touch a pig's carcass without being unclean. Basically saying that he's holding a pigskin, therefore he's unclean, therefore the poster child of Christianity is a hypocrite. It's like, is this right? Like, are we hypocrites? Or it's like, okay, someone might say, do you believe in Leviticus 19, 18 that says you should love your neighbors yourself? And you're like, yes. Well, why don't you, uh, why don't you believe verse 19? Because it says you can't wear tribal and t-shirts and they're super soft. It's true, read it, right? Like, <laughs> can't combine fabrics, right? So, so it's like, why do you pick one thing and not the other? And so some people question, like, are we being hypocrites? Or Deuteronomy 14, like, talks about you can't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Why don't we raise concern about that? I'll go on record and tell you I've never done that. And if someone, <laughs> and if someone was doing it, I think it'd be weird. <laughs> like, What? Is it make it more flavorful? I'll try it. Um, so all I have to say, like, what do we, so when we are, what are we doing with the Old Testament? Are we just picking and choosing? Well, here's, here's something I think is super helpful. You have the Old Testament, which is this mosaic law that includes moral, civil, ceremonial, all this stuff. And it's, it's moving towards something, right? So then in the middle, you have Jesus. Okay, now imagine Jesus is like your Brita filter, right? He's just, he's, he's, he's filtering out stuff, right? So the, the Old Testament law comes and it meets Jesus and then it filters through. And so as it filters through, some things are filtered out and some things continue forward. So what we do, like we follow things from the Old Testament, not because they're in the Old Testament, because they're re-upped in the New Testament. But what's in the New Testament is completely different than the Old Testament law. What's in the New Testament is now called the law of Christ, all right? So we follow this not because it's the Mosaic law. We follow this because it's what's known as the law of Christ. So if you, if you read like 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Corinthians 9 or Galatians 3, you begin to understand like there's a new law that we are following. So like, what is that? What is the law of Christ? Well, some people say it's just love, right? I agree. Like we want to love God and love others. 
But it's more than that. So in, in 1 Corinthians 7, there's this call to obey commandments, plural, right? New Testament. So the law of Christ is more than just love. It's, it's commandments. So what is the law of Christ? I would define it like this, all right? The law of Christ is the example that Jesus gives us. Right? It's the example of Jesus as well as the commands he and his apostles give to help guide us in living spirit-filled lives, all right? The law of Christ is the example of Jesus as well as the commands he and his apostles give to help guide us in living spirit-filled lives. So the law of Christ gives us tangible and concrete ways to know that we are loving God and loving others. So we have a new law. So we follow this stuff. Those commands like love your neighbors yourself, not because of Leviticus, but because of Jesus, right? So we follow the law of Christ. Hear me, like the Old Testament has no binding authority on our lives anymore, but we do want to align ourselves to a new law, the law of Christ, right? So, so what do we do with this? Our relationship with Jesus creates a big change in who we are and how we live, right? Our relationship, like, so like, why do we follow the law of Christ? Because our relationship with Jesus creates a big change in who we are and how we live. That's why, I, that's why I think he uses the illustration of marriage. It's such an incredible, like, I think about um, when Lucy and I were dating, and I was going to ask her dad for her hand in marriage. It was at her niece's, I, I will never forget this day. It was at her niece's birthday party. Lucy was doing something, so she wasn't there, and I'm thinking, this is it, like, this is it. This is my moment. So I walk into the neighborhood clubhouse and, and her dad's sitting in a chair and I walk up to him. I'm like, Tony, can I, can I talk to you for a second? He's like, you know, I give a man a few words. And, and like all of a sudden her mom shows up and her sisters and brother-in-laws and there's this audience. And he goes, Jeff, and I, I know, and you have to know him. He just doesn't speak a lot. And he's really soft-spoken. He goes, I, and I don't know him very well at all at this point. And he goes, I, I've, I've known this day was gonna come. And I've been thinking what I wanted to say to you. He goes, I think I got it. And he looks up at me and he goes, have you seen her mama? That's what she's going to look like in 30 years. <laughs> have you seen her room? She's not clean. She can't cook. Are you sure? And he just like, he, lost, he thought he was the funniest guy in the world. But I never forget this, right? Now, he said those things jokingly, but... He also knows that, hey, you don't enter a marriage relationship lightly, right? Because when you get married, there's no area of your life that goes untouched. It changes everything, right? So you think like when you're, when you're a bachelor or a bachelorette, you might have a way of doing your dishes. One person might be the you use a dish, you wash a dish, and there's never a dish in the sink. The other person might be, well, you fill this sink up all day, and then at the end of the night, you load it into the dishwasher. And so then you get married, and there's the conflict of how do we do dishes, right? It's like something's got to give. Or you think about towels. As a guy, you might wash your towel once or twice a year. Because if you're clean, if you're clean when you get out of the shower, how is it dirty, right? And so, so you've got one towel that you dry off with and dry your hands with. Then you get married, and there's, there's, there's towels on racks, with smaller towels on those, and those towels you don't touch. 
you use this towel over here for drying your hands. And then when you have guests over, there's spare towels. So there's these neatly folded and stacked towels over here, but those aren't actually spare towels. Those are towels for decoration. The real ones are in the linen closet. And so, so it's like, like all of a sudden you're, you're going, something. To, I have to create a philosophy of towels, right? Because you don't know that like, something's got to give or decisions. You don't, you don't have the freedom just to go hang out with whoever, whenever you want, right? Like all of a sudden, you don't just get to make decisions and blow all your grocery budget on Taco Bell. You have to make decisions, not unilaterally, but decisions together because marriage changes us. It affects all about us. And so what Paul is doing by using the illustration of marriage here is he's showing us that our relationship with Christ is meant to change everything about us that when you enter into a relationship with Christ, there's nothing about your life that goes untouched. Now, here's the deal. When you get married, you lose a level of freedom. Okay, like that's just, that's the truth. If you wanna maintain your autonomy, if you wanna maintain your independence, if you want like, like marriage ruins that because you lose a level of your freedom, but you gain this incredible experience of love intimacy, acceptance, and security that's just not possible outside of that relationship. And so what happens is, yes, you lose your independence, but it's not a burden, it's a joy. And they're saying the same way. Like, so when we think about how when we follow Jesus, yes, we are giving up some of our freedom and some of our independence and it changes everything, but we don't see it as burdensome. We find it to be our joy. You see, verses one through six of chapter seven is Paul's final answer to the question from chapter six. The question being, can Christians live however they want? To this, he says, no, because our love and relationship with Jesus is as personal and comprehensive as marriage. God, thank you for your word. God, you have freed us from trying to earn acceptance from our obedience. And you have shown us through the, the life of Christ that our acceptance is by your grace alone. God, let us know that. Let us know love. Let us know acceptance. Let us know security. Let us know intimacy with you in such a way that our following you and living like you is never a burden, but it's a joy because we're madly in love with Jesus. God, let Redeemer be a people who are following you and living out the law of Christ. And let that just have an incredible effect to the people we're around, to the town you've placed us in. God, be a light through us so that others will come to know who you are. God, it's your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.